This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. That is Psalm 116, 1 through 2. There's nothing specific as to why I pulled that out for today. I just like it. I think it's awesome. But guys, we're going to do some fun things here on today's episode that are long overdue. Before we get there, I want to remind you, if you have not done so already, please leave us a positive five-star review. Most of the reviews that you guys are familiar with are either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. But if you listen on one and not the other, if you would do me a solid, just go over to the other one, leave five stars real quick. It's actually super, super easy on Spotify, but I know some of y'all listen on some of the other players that are out there, so I would appreciate five-star reviews everywhere. If it's four-star and below, just ignore it. Just move on with your day. You don't have to worry about it. Also, guys, we are almost a 100% listener-supported ministry, so if you guys like the stuff that we're doing, yes, we do have some ads, but the overwhelming majority of how we're able to keep the lights on around here is because guys like you donate. So here's the thing. If you like this content, if you want more content like this, understand that everything we do costs money and everything we're planning on doing in 2023 and beyond costs money. So we need guys just like you to hop on board with us. So go to undaunted.life backslash pod, or sorry, undaunted.life backslash donate, undaunted.life backslash donate to go and do that. But before we get there, I want to remind you about the upper room and the King's Council. So this is big time attention to business owners, entrepreneurs, and the soon to be entrepreneurs that are listening to this podcast right now, the upper room and the King's Council. So the mission of these two organizations is to create wealth and provision for the purpose of establishing God's covenant on earth. So what these organizations do, what these two groups do is they equip entrepreneurs with tools, systems, and frameworks necessary to discover, develop, and deploy their God-given vision into the marketplace. So specifically, I want to talk about the upper room mastermind. So if you're an existing entrepreneur or a business owner, or you're about to launch in, or you're trying to ramp up and you're looking for a tribe of like-minded, bold kingdom leaders, eager to engage in the battle of business, then the upper room is 100% for you guys. So I don't want you to miss out on this. So what they do is they host virtual and in-person events every month, and they focus on business strategies to increase sustainable revenue for your business while providing ongoing accountability. So this is a very customizable thing to your business. Cause obviously if you're running you know, a uh, flower shop versus running an insurance business is going to be a little bit different what your needs are. So I've actually spoken to their group before. So I have some behind the scenes looks as kind of the, some of the things that they're doing. And if you want more information on this, go to episode 355 of this podcast. That was my interview with Riley Meek. He is the founder of the King's Council in the upper room. So it's 355 Riley Meek at the King Entrepreneurship and Money. And he made an offer on that episode that I thought was awesome. So if you guys will text upper room to 727-472-3860, you will get an application to schedule a one-on-one with Riley Meek, who is the founder of the upper room and the King's council. So again, that's upper room. So that's U P P E R R O O M to 727-472-3860 to schedule your one-on-one with the founder of the upper room and the King's council, Riley Meek guys, you will not want to miss this. It's going to be great value to you. But today, uh, what we're going to be doing today is we haven't done Q&A in a very, very long time. When I was going back through my notes to figure out what number we were on, because we're on volume 20, the last time we did Q&A was in April. 
Like that's a long time. But just so you guys know, when you send me DMs or emails with questions, even if you want them to be immediately answered, some of you send stuff specifically for Q&A podcasts. I put them into a bank on my phone of questions for me to pull from later. And in this particular podcast, none of these, I believe, have anything to do with the news cycle. So this is kind of a standalone episode. This can kind of go whenever, wherever. It's not really going to have to do with something that's pertinent and in the news. So that gets you guys a little bit of a break from the news cycle. But don't worry, we'll get back into it next week. But with these questions, I just want to kind of let you guys know, you can ask me anything that you want to ask me. There have been very, very few emails. There was actually one here recently that I won't go into. Very, very few emails will go without a response from me. If you if you take the time to send me an email, info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life, I will take the time to respond. I typically respond with a voice memo because it's just quicker for me. I don't have to sit there and you know make sure I spelled everything correctly and blah, 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 and move on. I can just basically talk into my phone, send it to you, and give you what you need. So guys, if you want to get your answer or your question, rather, answer it on a future Q&A episode or have the chance at that, send me a DM to any of our social medias. I don't really pay attention to the comments, so pay, uh, send me a DM or send me an email and we'll go from there. So let's go ahead and get into the first Q&A question here. How do you speak your wife's love language? Okay, so this is obviously going back to, oh gosh, what is the, the name of that? Uh, Gary, crap. Okay, I'm going to do a lot of Googling in this uh, particular podcast because I'm already doing it. Gary, I want to say, oh crap, uh, five love languages. He's on our book list and I already forgot the guy's name. Come on, Kyle. Gary Chapman. Okay, I wanted to say, a different Gary, but okay, I'm glad I looked it up. So Gary Chapman, he wrote this book. When did this book release? It's like probably 20 or 30 years old, but it, break down, it breaks down the five different love languages, okay? And so let me see if I can actually remember off the top of my head. So words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, quality time, physical touch, boom, baby. And for those that you were watching, I literally was looking off camera away from my screens to name those five. I usually get four out of five for whatever reason. But basically what that book is, there's nothing really magical about the book, right? It's, it's pretty straightforward. But what it does is it kind of gives you a scaffolding for how to fill your spouse's love tank. So if you're familiar with that language, you'll know what I'm talking about. But if not, basically the way that you receive love is not necessarily the way that your spouse receives love. So again, let's go, let's go through the list. So words of affirmation, acts of service, gifts or giving gifts, quality time, physical touch. So let's say your spouse, your wife is a quality time person and you are an acts of service person, what you might do for your spouse is a bunch of acts of service because that's how you like to receive love, okay? So you're just doing stuff around the house and you're doing projects and you're fixing stuff and you're remodeling things and blah, blah, and all those things. And the whole time your wife is just kind of sitting there quietly being like, man, I wish she would just come over here and sit down and talk to me, right? You kind of see what I'm saying? So her love tank takes a particular kind of fuel and that's quality time and you keep giving her acts of service. It's like putting, you know, unleaded in a diesel or vice versa or something like that. But here's the interesting thing about my wife and her love language is the first time we took the love language test, which I guess you can just go to, you know, what is it? Fivelovelanguages.com and you could do the test and all that. It'll tell you what yours is, have your spouse do their, your spouse do theirs and you can kind of go from there is when we first took that, when we were going through marriage counseling versus whenever she took it again, like a few years ago, her primary and secondary love language changed. And so that's, I guess, the thing that I would want to kind of put out there with this particular question is, is you guys got to make sure that you are speaking your, your wife's current love language. And for the ladies out here that are listening to this, we appreciate you that you're speaking your husband's current love language, because if you're not speaking their current love language, it might be an issue for you because maybe they used to be quality time. You're giving a lot of quality time, but now they've kind of moved over to words of affirmation. That's a little bit different. And the physical touch one isn't what you think. So even if it was physical touch, maybe it's not the type of touch that you're doing when you're doing it. So for me, I guess for me, it's just constantly reminding myself of kind of what, what I'm doing and how it's pertaining to her and how she's going through life at that moment. Now, 
I will say the last few years since we had our firstborn and now we've got, you know, a, an infant, uh, things have changed considerably in terms of how we even communicate because in a large degree, we are just hanging on by our fingernails, right? We don't have family around here. We don't really have a lot of help. All the help that we do get, we have to pay for and we do, uh, we try to ball out, but we try to ball out on a budget kind of a thing. And so that's kind of one of those deals for us is we don't have as much time as we want to basically feed into one another, even though that is wildly, wildly important. But right now I'm just trying to do everything I can to not, you know, make her angry. She's trying to do everything she can to not make me angry. We're trying to help each other out while helping the kids out and keep them alive. So it's a bit of a crazy situation, but in general, when your life kind of finds that stasis, when it kind of levels out or something like that, you really need to focus on this. Now I'm not going to say, Hey, every year you need to take this five love languages test just to make sure. But if it's been a while, if it's been three, four, five years, I mean, guys, just think about how different you were when you went to college than when you graduated. Think about how different you were when you got your first job versus, you know, five years into that first job. Like you're going to change quite a bit as a person. You're going to have different opinions. You're going to go about things a different way. A lot of guys have looked at our podcast and looked at the stuff that we do. And they're like, dude, I'm so different just because I've been listening to your podcast for the last few months. And it's like, okay, that thing that happens in life as well. That happens with your love languages. So every few years, you should probably take that test just to kind of see where you are. And you could even use that book as kind of a, a good checkup thing. So I'm totally fine with that. All right. Next Q and a question here. What do I do when somebody asks me to refer to them by pronouns that do not match their biological sex? What about people that want me to refer to them by a new name? Um, okay. So let's take the, the second question and then go back to the first one in terms of the new name stuff. Like I'm totally fine with that. So if somebody legally changes their name, or even if they don't legally change their name, they just prefer to go by a different name and it's a serious name. It's not like something vulgar or something like sexual or something stupid that you would never say in public. But like I use my son as an example, because a lot of people named James go by Jimmy or Jim or something like that. That's not on his birth certificate and it never would be because if I wanted him to be named Jimmy, I would have just named him Jimmy. But if he asked somebody to call him Jimmy, a teacher or somebody at work, they should just go along with that. It's just, it's just a name. The same thing would be said. If uh, somebody out there, you know, named Carl decides they're a woman and now they want to be called Carla, if they want to be called Carla, if that's their name, I say, go for it. It doesn't really matter. People that like use someone's old name to try to prove the point that I'm about to talk about. I don't really get that. So like if I met Caitlyn Jenner, I would not call him Bruce. Okay. Because his chosen name now is Caitlyn. It's weird. It's silly. It doesn't make sense, but I'm going to call him Caitlyn. But let's get back to the first question, which is what do I do when somebody asks me to refer to them by pronouns that do not match their biological sex? I disagree with a lot of people here, especially the really, really nice squeaky clean conservatives or Christians in saying that you should never refer to somebody that in a way that doesn't align with their biological sex, if you know it. And there are very, very, very few people on this planet that you, that you can't just look at them and know what gender they are to know whether or not they are male or female. And yes, there are only those two options, but if someone demands, I talked about this a while ago with the, the stuff at UCO, my alma mater, where they're like, Hey, you know, they have a pronoun policy now. And so let's say, you know, for a fact that this is a male standing in front of you, but they demand that you compelled speech wise, that you use feminine pronouns, she, her, hers, those types of things. No, you should not go along with that. And part of it, and, and I've talked about this with other people and I've challenged a guy like Justin Brierley because he had a transgender person on his show and he decided to use their preferred pronouns that didn't align with their biological sex. And I kind of called him out on, I'm like, bro, like you're supposed to stand up for truth as a Christian. And yet you're playing into this delusion that this person is the opposite gender. 
And they do it because they're like, oh, I don't want to be needlessly offensive and I want to be loving to my neighbor and all those different things. And I've, But I've used this example before that if your neighbor identified as a furry, there are people out there that are furries that I, they identify as animals. Would you invite them over for dinner and give them their food on the ground? Would you take them out on a walk so that they could go use the bathroom? Would you do that with, I mean, that would be loving according to that logic. There are people that identify as furniture. Would you sit on them? After you were done with dinner, would you lounge back on them because they identify as a sofa? I don't think so. And I bet you wouldn't make the argument that those things would be loving. And so in that aspect, like, no, as Christians, we are supposed to stand up for the truth. And the truth is that God made them male and female, male and female. He created them. Okay. That's it. There's only male and female. And you're not assigned that at birth. It is a parent at birth. It is a parent at that exact moment, right? We can literally look at your genitalia, but even down to your DNA, even down to your chromosomes, we know what you are. It's either XX or XY in almost 100% of cases, okay? And so enough with this trying to appease everyone and just say, oh, well, we want to be nice and we don't want to be needlessly offensive. The thing, the way around it, guys, is to not use pronouns at all. Just use somebody's chosen name. So if you're really worried about somebody that's clearly a man that wants you to call him, you know, she, her, just use the person's name. If you really want to get around it, but if push comes to shove, you better stand up for truth because that's your job. All right, guys, next Q&A question here. What Bible translations do you like and do you read any commentaries? And so, uh, yes, absolutely. I, I use the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, at my church, our pastor uses the NASB version. I'm fine with both. Um, you know, I don't uh, really, I'm not really one of those people that's like, if you read a different version, like you're stupid or going to hell, unless you read the message, which, guys, what is that exactly? I'm not sure what those words are supposed to mean, but it doesn't even vaguely seem like scripture. But yes, I'll actually grab uh, my Bibles here. So let's see. All right. So this one right here, this is my ESV, the Reformation Study Bible. And so you won't be able to see this, but basically there's the scripture on top and then on bottom, there's uh, some commentary there. So that's the Reformation Bible. So one of my commentaries here is the MacArthur Bible commentary. That is absolutely fantastic. Another Bible here. All right, I've got the ESV study Bible, just the regular one. This one, I mean, I know so many people that have this. So fantastic, fantastic Bible. All right, I'll grab the rest. So the rest of the ones on my stack. So this is just an ESV note Bible. So it has really wide margins so you can take notes in it. So uh, that's a good one, but there's no commentary in that one. Um, this is one that I just got here recently. I haven't had a lot, whole lot of time to dig into it, but this is actually uh, Systematic Theology by Rain Grudem. So uh, that's that's an awesome one. So I guess that's technically a commentary, even though it's a Systematic Theology, whatever. And then another commentary I use is the Moody Bible Commentary. And another thing is like whenever you're doing any type of a scripture reading or scriptural study or something like that, there are so many different websites out there where you can get all these different commentaries just by plugging in, you know, plug in, you know, John two verse 10, and then you can just get all these different commentaries through Google. So those are the ones that I like. So if you like something else out there, I don't really care. Good for you. I, I read the ESV. It works for me. All right. Next question here. Is Israel Adesanya a boring fighter? So this is an interesting question. And I'll give you my answer and then we'll back into it. And I'm going to say, yes, he is a boring fighter. Okay. So I'm going to actually Google this because, um, 
I want to actually look at his fights in the UFC and kind of point something out because the reason why this is even a question right now is because of his last performance in his last title fight against Jared Cannonier, and this was at UFC 276 back in July. And so that was a unanimous decision win. I think he won all five rounds. It wasn't particularly close. Neither one of them really looked like they had been in a fight afterwards. And the crowd was booing throughout. Uh, to be honest, this was one of the few title fights that I just went to bed. I, I can't remember what fight was right before that, um, but I literally went to sleep because I was like, I know what's going to happen. Jared Cannonier is going to basically stare at him like he's staring at the Mona Lisa. There's not going to be any action. And if I miss a knockout, I don't care. I'm going to sleep, right? Got to, got to go to church in the morning. But that kind of opened up the narrative for the first time for a lot of people, which was, is he a boring fighter? And this is why I'm going to say a guy like him probably is a boring fighter, okay? And it's because he's had so many fights, like the one with Jared Cannonier, And just like with the Jared Cannonier fight, everybody blames the opponent, not Israel Adesanya. And their, their excuse is the same. After every single one of these stinker performances, it's like, well, what is Adesanya supposed to do? He's the champ. Like, why does he have to go out there and try to knock the guy out? Why does he have to get the big performance, right? It's up to the other guy to take the belt off of him, not for him to prove that he should keep it. It seems like it makes sense, except for the fact that Israel Adesanya is trying to be the greatest fighter ever. And so I remember when I first started paying attention to this, it was when he called out Yoel Romero. Okay, so he fought Yoel Romero at UFC 248 in March of 2020. Okay, so I remember when he called out Yoel Romero and me thinking, man, that is one of the most gangster things. He called out the scariest dude in the division and he said, hey, I got to fight the boogeyman or else my legacy is not going to be intact regardless of where I end up. Okay, but then he went out there and guys, if you haven't watched the fight, don't. It's ridiculous. And he basically stood in front of, of Yoel Romero and did point karate for 25 minutes. And, you know, just basically did some leg kicks, did some stuff here or there, won a unanimous decision, and then the rest of us moved on. And everybody blamed Yoel Romero. Oh, why did Yoel Romero not do anything when Israel Adesanya wasn't coming forward either? And the excuse is, oh, he's a, you know, he's a reactionary fighter and he wants you to, to overextend so that he can counter, like he's a counter puncher and all those different things. And it's like, yeah, I get it. But then they compare him to to Anderson Silva, but during Anderson Silva's prime, which is where Israel Adesanya is right now in his prime, he was finishing everybody in, in brutal, astonishing fashion. But here's the thing. So let's go through the fights that Israel Adesanya has had in his career that were really exciting fights. So we'll start from the beginning of his, uh, his UFC career, which was uh, back when he beat Rob Wilkinson at UFC 221 in February, 2018. So uh, that fight, uh, he won by TKO. He won via split decision to Marvin Vittori. Snoozer of a fight. He beat, uh, he beat uh, Brad Tavares. Uh, unanimous decision. Snoozer of a fight. Uh, he TKO'd Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson did not look good in that fight. Uh, Izzy looked amazing. His, his fight against Anderson Silva, UFC 234. Everyone's like, oh, this is a passing of the guard. At this point in Anderson Silva's career, he hadn't won a fight in forever. I think he was on a six or seven fight losing streak. And Israel Adesanya actually lost the second round to Anderson Silva. So everyone's like, oh, it was a great win. No, it was an embarrassing win that he had to eke it out in the third round of that fight. Kelvin Gastelum, that is one of the greatest fights you'll ever see. Israel Adesanya, Kelvin Gastelum. Israel Adesanya proved in that moment, like you could see him, his mouth moving before the, the fifth round started. He said, hey, I'm prepared to die. Like, you know, he went out there. That was one of the greatest fights you'll ever see. But then he did uh, the fight against Robert Whitaker which he knocked him out. Obviously a great performance. Robert Whitaker was way aggressive in that fight, got caught and got taken out. Then there was a fight I just talked about with Yoel Romero, Stinker. 
Paulo Costa embarrassed him. You know, it was it was a horrible fight for Paulo Costa. Great, great performance by Israel Adesanya. Then he fought against Jan Blahovich, uh, tried to win the 205 belt, and Jan beat him basically by taking him down twice, right? Super boring fight. Then Marvin Vittori again, super boring fight. Then Robert Whitaker again, sort of close fight, but it was mainly just kind of point, point fighting back and forth. And then you had the stinker against Jared Cannonier. So we've got a bunch of stinkers, a bunch of boring fights, and then we've got some of these unbelievably spectacular performances, okay? So I think the narrative is warranted for a guy like Israel Adesanya to where it's like, look, dude, you're trying to be Mr. Everything. You're trying to be relevant in culture, not just in the octagon. But when all anyone can talk about after your fights is how cool your intro was, like where you walked to the, the octagon, like walking in as Undertaker or walking in doing some sort of breakdance or something like that. When more people are talking about that than your performance in the octagon, something's out of whack. So I'm still going to pay attention to Israel Adesanya. Obviously, he's got a big fight coming up, uh, you know, later on this year at Madison Square Garden. Like he's a big fighter who fights in big fights on big fight cards. So I'm going to watch him. But guys, don't be shocked if he continues to have performances like this, because overall, he has the skill set to be one of the greatest fighters ever, if not the greatest fighter ever. But for the most part, most of his fights are pretty boring. All right. Next question here. Actually, this is funny. I actually got lots of questions about my water bottle that I use, which to any of you guys that just listen to the show, you're like, why does that matter? But to those of you on YouTube and Rumble, apparently that matters a lot. Okay. So the first question is, why do your water, why does your water look so dirty? Okay. So I'm holding it up to the screen right now. My water actually looks pretty clear, but the reason why my water does look dirty whenever I sneak a, a sip of water in, it's because I add a little something to my water, which I forgot to do before the show, but you'll see this. So I'll kind of shake it up so you can kind of see there's this like potion that I make that I, I have in an old Buffalo trace bottle. Cause it's easy to pour out of, but basically I will add, you know, a, a teaspoon or, or so to each one of my uh, big deals of water whenever I go to fill it up. Um, but what this is, is it's pink Himalayan sea salt, uh, kind of melted into water. And so my dentist, the last time I went to the dentist is like, yeah, you know, I'm afraid you're not really getting the nutrients you need from water. You know, they filter so much stuff out, you know, you should do what I do. Give it a try. You know, he basically does three parts water to one part pink Himalayan sea salt and he boils that. And then he basically bottles that up and he adds it to his water. So as you can see, for those of you watching my, my, you know, it's really, really, uh, whatever that be called smoky or, uh, foggy. There you go. Kind of foggy right now. Go ahead and take a sip. But basically, it kind of salts the water down and it's supposed to give you more nutrients. It's kind of like with some vitamins that I take. I don't know if it's doing anything, but it's not going to harm me in any way, shape, or form. So I might as well give it a try. So that's why my water looks dirty sometimes. Also, yes, what stickers are on my water bottle? So first sticker I got is one of the uh, Test Undaunted Life stickers that we did back in the day. Um, this is a company called Hardcore Carnivore. So they do like meat rubs and things like that. So I just thought it was a cool name. Uh, Howler Brothers, they make uh, shirts and stuff, but uh, cool logo. I have an I Voted sticker that's all uh, worn out because, you know, that's the way that you show that you're civically virtuous is by uh, wearing the I Voted sticker. Um, I've got Nearfall right there. So those are the guys that uh, they're out of Amarillo, Texas. They made our first uh, t-shirts and also our first rash guard. So great company. They, they do wrestling gear. So if you need wrestling gear for your wrestling team, your youth wrestling team or something like that, check out Nearfall. Then this is a uh, a sticker for Native Summit, which is kind of like a gear shop here in in Edmond, Oklahoma, where I live. So it's like, you know, hiking gear and, you know, summer gear and camping gear and outdoorsy type stuff. So that's a great little shop. So those are the stickers that are on my water bottle. So next question about my water bottle, why do you use a straw? Okay. So I use a straw for this reason right here. I just took a quick sip of water. 
Because if you're not drinking through a straw and you're trying to take a quick sip of something, you've got a better than zero chance of pouring it on yourself. Okay. And so I'm not trying to get water all over my keyboard and my mouse and my pants and my shirt and all those different things. And so whenever I'm needing just a quick sip because my mouth's getting drier or during an interview or something like that, I just take a quick sip. It's no big deal. All right, guys, don't try to imply anything because I'm using a straw. There are a bunch of manly men and there have been manly men throughout history that have used straws, you crazy bigot. Last question here about my water bottle is how often do you pee, which I guess is related. And the answer is all the time. I am constantly peeing. I just drink and drink and drink. Cause, cause again, I don't drink soda. Like the only things that I drink, I basically drink water. I drink Gatorade and occasionally I drink whiskey, right? That, that's about it. But I'm constantly drinking water. I've got water by my bedside. I'm as hydrated as just about anyone that you know, but that's why I'm just basically using the restroom all the time. So it's a miracle. I can make it through one of these podcasts. All right. Next Q and a question here. Why does this, <laughs> why does it seem like you hate school teachers? Uh, okay. So I think I've talked about this before. I don't know if it's been on Q and a, but I have brought it up before. I know it seems like I've got it out for school teachers. Um, you know, that I go after the teachers unions and all these other different things. And maybe I'm jaded because I had bad teachers. Here's the thing. I went to one of the better schools in Oklahoma. I went to Lawton Eisenhower, which at the time in 2000, early 2000s or whatever, one of the better schools in the, in the state. Um, and I had good teachers cause I was in, you know, pre AP and AP classes and honors classes and all that. But I can say without a doubt that I can count on one hand and still have fingers left of the number of teachers I had growing up that took an interest in me individually and seemed to really, really care whether or not I learned the subject matter. Okay. Which I kind of feel like is the bare minimum for being a teacher. Okay. So without getting into all the stuff, the craziness now about, you know, teachers wanting to know your, your gender and wanting to know your sexual history and wanting you to ask them about theirs and all that. The reason why it seems like I'm kind of down on teachers is because they act like we're supposed to worship them for, for the most part. And this all goes back to when the state of Oklahoma, when the teachers were basically picketing outside the state Capitol because they wanted raises. Okay. And they're comparing us to Texas and they're comparing us to all these other States. And look, we're using, we're losing our teacher of the year to this state. And we got to keep our teachers here and blah, blah, and all these things. But here's the deal. All the people that teach K through 12 public school education are doing it by choice. They chose to do that. They chose to go to school and get a degree in education. They chose to get a teaching certificate. They chose to get and get a master's in education. They chose to apply to the job at the school that they ended up taking the job at, right? That's all them. And they knew the entire way that they weren't going to get paid very much to do it. They weren't going to get paid very much. It wasn't like these people were shocked when they were given their first offer or their first contract and they weren't a millionaire immediately. These people knew that. And then they just complain and complain and lament about the things that they don't have. And they always ask for the same thing, more money. I want to get paid more. I need more educational funding. What I never hear any of these teachers talk about is educational outcomes. I need this money so that things can be better. Because when you start making that argument, we can actually go to the data of how much money you're getting. Uh, you know, per capita, per student. And then we can compare that with the educational outcomes, the graduation rates and the, you know, uh, test scores and all these different things to see if that's actually working. And they don't want to make that argument because it's typically not a very good correlation. Okay. So when you complain and complain and complain, and yet you never talk about the thing that I would be concerned about as a parent that would have a kid in your classroom is how is this going to help my kid learn? How's this going to help their peers all rise together? How is that going to help? So that's part of my problem with these teachers. They want to get paid more. They want to do all these other things. But also, 
It's this idea that somehow they're on the same plane as people that work out in the private sector. Because if you prorate what they make for 12 months, which they don't work 12 months, they work nine to 10 months out of the year. If you prorate that, they actually make more in their job as a teacher than most people do in their average jobs. Again, you know, that's a wide swath because you have, you know, lawyers making a million dollars a year. And then you have, you know, somebody that, that works at a, you know, a mill or something like that. That's probably making 35, 40, $40,000 a year. Like I get that. It's a, it's a dearth of information, but again, they just complain about what they don't have and how much money they don't have, but they never complain about the vacations, the two months off in the summer, spring break, fall break, Christmas break, Thanksgiving break in the private sector. Like you got to ask for that time and you don't always, don't always get it. If you're running a business, you don't have time off. Like, I don't remember the last time I took like a week off, right? Certainly not two months off at a time. And so we're, so we're just supposed to sit here and look at these people and like, be like, oh, these poor teachers, they had to spend money on pencils. Okay. Well, you have a lot of people giving you money. You have a lot of people paying. And then you also demand that the parents of these people basically stock up your classrooms. What are you complaining about? What are you complaining about exactly? And the other thing is, again, and then I'll leave it here, this, this idea that they are a homogenous group of heroes. I hate that. There are no homogenous groups here in this country. All cops are not good. All soldiers are not good. All firefighters are not good. And all teachers are not good. Now, in general, I can back the blue, right? I can back all first responders. I can, you know, support the troops. And I can support teachers, right? I can do all those different things while at the same time saying that there are some bad eggs in any potential system that allows those bad eggs to stay in that job to the detriment of children's development is a bad system, which is exactly what the teaching system is here in this in the United States. You have these tenured teachers or these teachers that have been around for a while that suck. They suck in every way that someone could suck, and they just keep getting their job. They keep getting paid. They keep paying their dues to the teachers' union, which is basically negotiating against the taxpayer for their benefit, and they keep getting raises. Why is that a good thing? So. Each teacher should be looked at individually. Now, I would say that the majority of them probably care and they're probably not horrible at their job. But again, looking at them as, as if they're this homogenous group of heroic, sacrificial people that only care about the students, I think is ridiculous and short-sighted. All right, next Q&A question here. You are obviously a very conservative guy, but don't you think it would be prudent at times to try to be more moderate? So this is an interesting question. And I'll tell you my answer right from the beginning. No. And this is why. Because I've had a lot of time to view people that would consider themselves to be moderates, to be independents, to be centrist. But what I've also found about those people is not that they're, you know, erudite or that they're really deep and they really spend a lot of time thinking about both sides and, and all this different stuff. And gosh, they just can't quite make a call. What I see is people that haven't really thought through the issues that far. So let's use an extreme example, abortion. Who's a centrist on abortion? Can you even be a centrist on abortion? Because I, I don't think you can. You either believe that is a living human being inside that woman's womb that is, deserves our protection as a society, or you don't. Do you think it's a meaningless clump of cells until it comes out of the vaginal canal, at which point then we are able, we're able to protect it, which doesn't make any sense. But you kind of see what I'm saying? What's the middle road on that? Uh, okay, you know what? We'll just kill babies after 12 weeks. Nah, you got me. Okay, compromise, clink our glasses together and move on, right? But the same is true with pick any topic. Taxation, immigration, 
uh, you know, funding for school systems, foreign aid, wars, all these different things. Why would you want to be moderate? Like, don't be lukewarm. Like, I need you to be hot or cold. And I'm not talking about that in terms of scripture. I'm literally talking about you either need to have a fully uh, fledged decision on this and it's binary. You're either on this side or on that side. You're a zero or a one. You're black or white. You're off or on. Like, that. that's it. But again, most of these people that feign being moderate or feign independence, they're not really that. They're either they're either not spending too much time actually reckoning with the things to where they can make a call and or they're a coward. And they don't want to make a call. They think it makes them seem smarter somehow that they're a middle of the road person, that they're registered as an independent, which basically makes their vote completely moot, except for once every four years or something like that. You know, that that's the thing that I don't really understand. I think it's it's similar to when people uh, pretend to like, you know, music or movies that are really obscure that no one actually really likes, but all the, you know, fashionistas really like it and all the, you know, the critics really like it and all the people at the New Yorker and all that, they really like it. And so for this person to seem interesting, they're like, oh yeah, I like that movie. I got it. Yeah. I know it's kind of hard to get, but you know, if you really watch it with an open mind, I bet you'd really get it. You should give it another try like that kind of person. Oh yeah. I know you listened to a few uh, tracks off that album, but man, really, if you like, just sit down and just, man, clear your head and, you know, just, just smoke a bowl and then just listen to it again, man. Like just, I think it'll be okay. And I'm not saying that every centrist is a pothead, but I think these people are not really being accurate about their point of view. Again, that's the people that are just basically faking it. But the other side, I just think people have not really thought through most of these issues to where they pick a side, right? Now, does that mean that you're always going to come down on the conservative side or the Republican side or the liberal side or the Democratic side? No. But when you have these issues, you'd need to be able to make a call. You can't be a centrist on guns. You either believe in the Second Amendment and that it's a good thing in total, or you don't. Like, you can't believe in terms of immigration that our southern border should be wide open and you understand why some people want to build a wall. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. All right, next Q&A question here. Why don't you post to TikTok anymore? So this one actually be uh, pretty quick. So when TikTok was getting really big, you know, I grabbed, you know, at Undaunted Life as the name because I didn't want somebody else to grab it or something like that. And I felt like a lot of the, the traction and a lot of the traffic was going over there. But to be honest with you, I don't need another thing. <laughs> like, I don't need another social media that I need to be worried about posting. Like today, I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't posted on Instagram yet. And, you know, did that post to Facebook or is it a reel, which won't actually post to Facebook, even though Facebook has reels and you're like trying to do the math and trying to keep everything straight. Well, you know, it's just like, it's too much. And then you've got obviously that the, the Chinese have made this app. It's making Americans dumber. It's making it harder for everybody to, you know, focus and all those different things. Now, I use TikTok because I love finding stuff on there. The algorithm understands me now and understands you guys so that I can take that stuff and post it on Instagram and on Facebook or something like that. But for us, it's like if we're going to make content, I want it to be excellent content. And there are already a bunch of great TikTok creators out there, even in the Christian space and something like that. So I don't really know that there's anything right now that we would add to it. So we're just not doing that. All right, next question here. You keep teasing big things coming in 2023. What do you have in store for us? Uh, so I put this question in there because uh, I've been asked a lot about it. And I was just going to wait to see how I was feeling whenever I went to record this episode to see if I would reveal some of the stuff. And you know what? I'm not feeling extra charitable. So I'm going to just kind of leave you guys. You know, maybe I'll give you a few hints. So for those of you that like the devotionals we put out before, maybe there's going to be some additions in that area. For those of you that like our podcast and want to see some more episodes that maybe have a unique flavor, that do things a little bit differently, and perhaps even bring in some voices that you've never heard from before, 
maybe that's something to look forward to in 2023. But all you guys need to know is that again, everything we do costs money. We we need you guys to help us and support us, you know, to become donors so that we can do those things. But we're constantly looking out for opportunities to do things that are going to help edify you guys and equip you to be able to push back darkness. So at the very least, you can expect more of that in 2023. All right, next question here. Do you think Jesus would watch MMA? So I got into a very, very short back and forth with a guy a while ago with some DMs because I think I posted, I posted some video of a fighter, like maybe, maybe his nose was broken or maybe it was a high, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was an MMA related thing. And someone sent me a DM and basically said, yeah, Jesus wouldn't watch that and you shouldn't, um, you know, support something that, you know, where some people are trying to destroy the Imago Dei or something like that. So going back to the core of the question, do I think Jesus would watch MMA? Yeah. Why wouldn't he? Like, why, why wouldn't he? It's a sport. It's a sport where there are physical consequences if the other person is better than you. Now, you see it, and I'm, this guy doesn't train. The guy that did this, like, you could just tell by the things he was saying, he's never trained a day in his life. Probably never been punched in the face. Definitely, definitely hasn't been part of a grappling exchange. This guy literally knows nothing about that world. So what he sees is what John McCain saw back in the day. You know, he saw human cockfighting, right? Like, he saw... He saw these, you know, horrible men trying to destroy each other and try to bloody each other and punch each other in the nuts and rip their testicles off and, you know, gouge out their eyes. Like, that's what he saw. Okay. He doesn't see a sport. But again, if you think about it in the way that I just described, and the way that I just described it is it's a sport where there are physical consequences if the other person is better than you. And I just described a lot of different sports out there that I'm sure this guy would be okay with. How about football? Typically, the more physical team is going to win. You are physically dominating the other people. And it starts in the trenches with the offensive and defensive line. And then it's the fullback that's trying to open up the hole. Then it's the running back making contact and trying to break that first contact to gain more yardage, right? It's somebody coming across the middle and a safety or a linebacker punishing that person uh, for doing that, making it harder for them to do that in the future. It, it really does all come down to physical violence. Wrestling. You're trying to physically subdue somebody and pin them on their back. You're trying to be superior to them where there is a physical consequence to them if they're not as good as you are. So that's what MMA is. Are you punching each other in the face? Yes. Is this a fight like it is out on the street? No. Because in almost 100% of the cases, as soon as the fight is over, the, the two uh, combatants, they shake hands, they give each other a little bro hug, they shake hands with the opposite team's coaches and they move on. It is a sport. It is a sport. This isn't a street fight. This isn't warfare, any of those things. This is a sport. And if you would say that Jesus wouldn't watch it, then you're telling every Christian that currently fights in MMA or has ever fought in MMA that what they're doing is ungodly in a way. So much so that if Jesus were here, he wouldn't watch them. And you're also saying that that person cannot glorify God, that somehow God cannot use MMA for his glory. Are you sure you want to make that argument? Are you sure that's the tact that you want to go forward and move forward with? Because man, you start doing that and you start just picking out the things that you don't understand or the things that you don't like. And then that list can start getting really, 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 really long. And I don't think you want to play that game. So do I think Jesus would watch MMA? Absolutely. All right. Next question here. What are you looking at during, <laughs> what are you looking at during your interviews? Uh, so for those of you that watch this, used to back in the day, I would uh, do a little bit more editing to where, you know, 
both of us would be on the screen, me and the person I was talking about. And then there'd be the other person on the screen uh, for most of that time, but it extended the editing time out way, 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 way far. And so I was, it was taking away from some of my interview prep and some of the other things that I'm doing here for Undaunted Life. So I was like, okay, you know what? Most people just listen to this anyway. So I just put it up there with a split screen with me and the other guy. Maybe I'll change that in the future. Maybe I won't. But during the interview, I'm looking at a lot of different things. Okay. So over here on my right, I've got the actual recording going on. Right. So sometimes I will veer off and look over there to kind of see where I'm at time wise. I'll actually look at the clock. You know, I'm looking at my notes and, you know, I can't have uh, their image in the program software that I'm using right in front of me and be able to look at my notes. And I don't want to do my interview like this where I'm looking over here like this. It's like this isn't 2020 or Dateline. Like that's that makes it a little bit awkward. But that's essentially what I'm looking at. And this kind of goes to the question of, hey, why didn't you ask this question or why didn't you do this follow up or something like that? I prepare a lot of questions that have a narrative arc to them to where if the person just answers my questions wrote, I can go from this question to this question, to this question, to this question. And after 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes or whatever, it's going to make a lot of sense and be palatable for you. And that's why you're going to enjoy the interview. But some interviews just absolutely blow up from the beginning. And I mean that mainly in a good way. And so I've got the things that I want to ask them, but also I'm still listening to what they're saying because I want, if they say something that's interesting, I want to be able to key in on that and ask a follow-up because I know you would be asking that if you were sitting in my seat. Okay. So that's what I'm looking at. So I'm not sitting there and, you know, making out my grocery list or sending poems and in haikus to my wife or anything like that. Like I'm, I'm working right. There are some times when I try, I'll actually mute myself because I need to Google something real quick because maybe there's a quote I've forgotten, or maybe there was a year that I need to look up or something like that. So I try to keep all the focus straight. I try to be as respectful to the person I'm talking to as possible. But if you do see my eyes, my eyes darting around the screen a little bit, that's why. All right, next question here. Why don't you talk about the Bible or the gospel more? Uh, and so uh, this question, I remember this question, who it came from, because they were basically saying, hey, you spent a lot of time on the news cycle. You spent a lot of time talking about politics. And it's like, I, I mean, why don't you just talk about the gospel? And the answer, the, the short answer is pretty simple. It's there's nothing more important on the planet that I could talk about than the gospel. But it's not the only thing that there is to talk about. That's why. Now, I, I start scripture. I start with scripture at the beginning of the episodes. Uh, we're going to be doing some interesting things next year that I'll, I'll talk to you guys about here in the coming months uh, that will bring a little bit more of that element into. And I think you guys are going to absolutely love it. But for the most part, there are things that I need to help you guys do that you're not getting from your pastor, who is a professional that is supposed to be talking about the gospel often. Okay. So again, we're here to equip men to push back darkness. Okay. We will apply the Bible when it is pertinent. And in a lot of these cases, the Bible and what it says and God's law is incredibly pertinent to that particular situation. But I'm trying to bring things down to a level. And I don't mean this to demean anybody's intellect or something like that, but you've got a job, you've got a family, you've got things that you're doing. This is my job. So I do the research so you don't necessarily have to, at least not immediately, even if I encourage you to do so afterwards. But what I'm trying to do is to equip you to push back darkness. And so I need to be able to understand what's going on around us to where I can help you do that. Because Let's say, and again, we're, we're not going into the news cycle at all in this one, but there's a lot of crap happening in the news right now, but that's not necessarily your pastor's responsibility. Like I remember a, a while ago, a couple of months ago, I was talking to my boy, uh, Joby Martin out of, out of Florida. And you know, this was after uh, Trump's place in Mar-a-Lago got raided and all that. And, you know, we were talking about how I talked about it on my show and he's like, well, I, you know, that's not really my responsibility to talk about it from the pulpit. And I'm like, yeah, I agree with you. Like you probably shouldn't lead off your sermon about, you know, Psalm 45 or something like that, talking about the FBI raiding Trump's uh, personal residence in Florida, right? I get it. But there are a lot of Christians that are worried about that. And they're wondering if they should be. 
they're wondering if that something like that were to happen to them. Is that just like, is that persecution? It, should I be love? I should, I love that because I'm being crucified kind of like, you know, Christ was crucified. Like they're confused. And so I try to bridge that gap a little bit for you guys. And sometimes I don't make uh, the road or the line incredibly clear. And so that's just something about my evolution as a podcast host and as a communicator that I want to try to make those lines uh, as, as easily as possible. But here's the other thing is if I came on here three times a week and just talked about the gospel, how long would it take before you're not listening to me anymore? How long until you're like, yeah, I get it. Because guys, to be honest, and I'll leave them nameless, there are some shows that I've listened to for a very long time that are just getting real laborious because it's the same thing over and over. But I like these people. I like what they're doing. I want to support them and all those different things. But it's like, man, you can only rewash and repackage that thing so many times where it's just like, okay, I get it. I know what you're going to say next. Like, I know what you're going to talk about. I know what you're going to set up here. And I know how long it's going to take you. So to a degree, I want to keep you guys on your toes. And I constantly want to be talking to you about things that are pertinent to your world. So. Hopefully that answers your question. All right, just a few more here. Next question. What does surrender look like to a man? While striving to push back darkness, how does a man surrender to God? Uh, that's actually a really good question. Um, I, I'm trying to remember uh, the person that sent it to me, but why does surrender look, or what does surrender look like to a man while striving to push back darkness? How does a man surrender to God? Well, the first thing I would say is if you're not in touch with God in any way, shape or form, if you're not spending any time in his word, and also if you're not spending any time in prayer, it's going to be hard for you to know when you should surrender and what you should be surrendering on and when it's time for you to, you know, gird your loins and push back darkness. So I don't necessarily want to skip over this question, but it's pretty simple and pretty obvious, I would say. So if you're only leaning on your own understanding, and I, I have an issue with this, I'll be straight up and honest about it. Like if you're only leaning on your own wisdom and your own views of what the next steps are and should be, if you're not leaning on the wisdom of any other godly men in your life, if you're not spending time in the word or spending time in prayer, you're probably not going to know what surrender looks like as a man. Because we love to point to Christ and we should appropriately point to Christ as him willingly surrendering up his life so that we would have a way to the Father. That's the entire story of the gospel. For those of you that think I don't talk about it enough, that's the story. Jesus could have chosen not to die, I guess you could say. But he willingly went to the cross to shed his blood so that we would have a pathway to the Father. So that the guilt would be paid, so that our sins could be covered. This was a debt that had to be paid by somebody. The debt couldn't just disappear. And the debt required blood. And it was God that gave his son to make that happen, right? And anyway, that's been talked about ad nauseum for the last 2,000 years and for good reason. But again, if you're going to surrender, part of that just says, hey, God, like that's trusting in Christ. That's the gospel. It's like, God, your will, but not, not my will. Like you, you figure this out and you drag me along. Like, the word is a lamp unto our feet. It's not a floodlight. So help me make the next few steps. You know, help if I make a misstep, help me get back on the right path, the path that you would have for me. So hopefully that helps you with that question. All right, a couple more left. How do you filter biblical truth and false teaching? Um, so I think this came up because there were a few teachers that were basically, or pastors that were coming out, teaching lessons and sermons about uh, stuff that wasn't pertinent to what was happening in the Bible, but it was pertinent to the current news cycle, and it was pertinent to what the culture wanted them to say. So that could be about trans issues, you know, lesbian, uh, gay, and basically the entire LGBTQ sexual revolution. It could be about any number of things that's popped up in the news cycle. Just pick something. And then you will have these people that will come out and say, oh, you should, you should be okay with that because the Bible says this. And even though this doesn't really align with the Bible, I'm drawing this connection. So the filter for most of you guys 
is being in the scripture. So let's use a micro example. You go to a church and the pastor says something as he's reading from the Bible or, or not, you know, he's doing his Ted talk and sprinkling the Bible over it. And then you're like, wait a minute. Like that's part of the reason why I left the church I was at previous to the one I'm at now, because like there was a sermon series that I was like, yeah, I was fine. It was a fine subject matter. But it's like, that's not what that Bible story was about. Like you were looking at that one scripture as if it's a bumper sticker when you, the context of that entire book means a lot. And this pastor didn't talk about that at all, like not even a little bit. And so then I was like, what are the other things I just bought hook, line and sinker from this guy that literally didn't have anything to do with proper you know, exegesis of what was happening in this particular part of the Bible? So the way that you filter biblical truth and false teaching is by making sure that you're in the scriptures. And so this is a struggle that I know a lot of people have, which we're going to try to, you know, address that in the coming months. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how, but a lot of people think, cause I've literally got a stack of books. You can't see it cause it's off camera right now, but this is all, all the Bibles and commentaries that I was you, talking to you about a second ago. A lot of people don't think they can just read the Bible. They think they have to study it. And it's kind of a yes and no, because there are a lot of people in existence, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, that read the Bible that only had parts of it. They didn't have an entire canon. They had parts of the Bible and they read that. And you had people that, you know, Moody wasn't alive yet. Uh, John Calvin wasn't alive yet. You know, uh, their favorite modern, you know, Wayne Grudem or, or, you know, Piper or Chandler, none of these people had written a single thing down yet. Okay. And somehow Christianity was still able to thrive and grow all over the world. Somehow the gospel was spread no matter what. So I think that that's very, very important for you guys to understand and realize, and that I'm speaking to me as well. Like, I want to do things to the extreme. Like, I want to do things, you know, so super excellent that sometimes I just don't even start because I was like, ah, man, I don't have time to study the Bible, but I perhaps have time to read it. Maybe I don't have time to read this chapter and all these three different commentaries and compare it with this translation of blah, 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 but I've got time to read this page. I do have time for that. So I think that's something that's really, really important. It's going to be hard for you to filter biblical truth and false teaching if you're not actually looking at the Bible. All right, guys, last question of the day here. Any tips for approaching the Bible for the first time? Okay, so I can remember me approaching the Bible for the first time. So became a Christian as a 10th grader. Um, and the first thing that I did, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, I went down to the Salt Cellar, which was a Christian bookstore in Lawton, Oklahoma, right next to Hastings, where I would, you know, uh, get, you know, uh, it wasn't DVDs at the time, it was VHSs of all the UFC fights and stuff like that. And I went in there and I bought the the most teenage extreme. I still have it downstairs. The the most teenagey like extreme. This is a cool kid Bible, right? Bought it. Don't even know how I had money, but I went and bought it. And what I did is I remember our youth teacher saying, "Hey, you should read the Book of John over and over and over and over. And then once you're done reading it over and over, read it again and again and again." And so I was like, okay, but I keep hearing people at the church say this thing. They keep saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And I didn't know if that was that hyphenated. Is that like one word? was this person's name. Was it like Wendy, Moira, Angela, darling from Peter Pan? Was it you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? And so then I opened up the Bible and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? What, how do you pronounce that? Haggaia, Haggai, Nehemiah, like Ezra, like uh, you know, first and second Kings, like which Kings are they talking about? Is that, is that like the English Kings? I had no idea. Cause I was looking at the old Testament, obviously. But then as I started scanning and getting back towards the end of the list, I saw Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I was like, Oh, Oh, there's the line. New Testament, old Testament. I had no idea what the difference was, difference was between the two. I had no idea, you know, uh, old covenant, new covenant, nothing. But I remember people talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So that's where I started. I started in Matthew, read all of Matthew. Then I went to Mark. Then I did to Luke. Then I did John. Then I just kept going 
all the way through the end of Revelation. And I had my highlighters at, I had my pens out, and I'm writing stuff. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. Oh, that's where that quote came from, from that song. That's actually a scripture, no way. And then I'm just basically doing that. And then I flipped over to Genesis. I was like, okay, I might as well start at the beginning of the book. And I went through Genesis and then started working my way through the Old Testament. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> you know, I got to, to Numbers and I, and I got to, you know, Leviticus. And I'm just like, oh, oh boy, this is so different. And so I kind of got bogged down a little bit, which shouldn't, you know, stop any of you from doing what you're doing. But if you're approaching the Bible literally for the first time, so I'm only talking to the people out here that are not experienced Christians, start in Matthew. I know a lot of people say John, John of all the four gospels is probably the most accessible, but my encouragement to you would be to start in Matthew, then go to Mark, then go to Luke, then go to John. That is the gospel. Okay. Those are the four gospels and there's different names for them and they have kind of different styles and the writers wrote in different ways. That is the story of everything. Now, the rest of the New Testament is wonderful. The rest of the Old Testament, which sets up the New Testament, is wonderful. But that's what all of eternity hinges on, is whether or not what we see and what we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whether that legit happened or not. Because Acts doesn't make sense without Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It doesn't make sense at all. And I know, again, people have ones that they prefer and all those different things. That's how you approach the Bible. Because whenever I go and talk to other people, whenever I'm sharing the gospel with people, that's where I come to. I say, look, all the stuff that you're describing is great. All the stuff, the stuff that you're talking about is fine. Like, I, I'm not going to fault you for wanting to do some research into this religion or that religion or this worldview or something like that. But at the end of the day, your entire eternity hinges on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth a Middle Eastern Jew was under the, the guidance of Pontius Pilate, crucified on a Roman cross at the behest of the Jewish lawmakers of the day, of the Sanhedrin. And then three days later, after he'd been put in a tomb, he walked out of the tomb alive. The resurrection is something that you have to reckon with because there is no middle ground, going back to the moderate thing from earlier, there is no middle ground. That either happened or it didn't. Jesus of Nazareth either died and stayed dead or he died and is dead no longer. Study whatever you want to study. Read whatever history book you want to read. If you want to read the you know, Bhagavad Gita or the, the Quran or, or with the writings of Buddha or all that, like, great. I don't care. All of eternity for everyone hinges on what is described in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. I think there's other parts of the Bible that are amazing, like reading through the Psalms and Proverbs are great. Nehemiah's, you know, one of my favorite books of all time. Like you get a, a great thing when you're reading through first and second Timothy in terms of relationships and, and discipleship and all that. None of it matters if Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John is not clear to you and if you don't trust in it and believe in it. So that's how I would approach it. All right, guys, we made it through again. If you want to send stuff to me, if you want other stuff, uh, if you want your answer or your question to be answered, that's the second time I've done this on this podcast, make sure you DM me your questions and also make sure you can send them over to info at Undaunted Life as well. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So for today, I just got the donation link for you guys because, you know, basically the rest of the stuff, we don't have a lot of other links that we talked about because we stayed out of the news cycle, which I know you guys like the quick hitters, but every now and then we got to take a little break from that. So hopefully, Hopefully you guys aren't too mad and too disappointed. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. 
Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.